Okay, Mihir, pleasure to be sat here with you at Carriage's Bar and Grill in Whitehall. You call this book a portrait of British moral duality. Explain how these images of the lion and the lamb symbolize this phenomenon. Well, the lion is the king of the jungle. The British were the king of the jungle. They had the greatest empire the world has ever seen. It used to be said that the sun never set on the British Empire. Though as Krishna Menon, an Indian freedom fighter, said that is because God didn't trust the British in the dark. But leaving that aside, um, the lion can also be rapacious. If anything comes in its way, it can destroy it. The lamb is the cuddly animal, you know. And the British in their history have shown this duality. They, when they ran the empire, they could be ruthless if they were opposed. And yet at the same time, even when they ran their empire, they often created systems which were rather nice and cuddly. And they could, even when they sometimes made horrendous mistakes, set up inquiries and chastise themselves. So that this quality was always coming through. And living in this country, I've been made very aware of it. I personally have gone through some terrible experiences in this country, been assaulted and feared for my life. And yet at the same time, I've had a lot of affection, um, a lot of opportunities, opportunities I wouldn't have got um, in the land of my birth in India, and been made aware that uh, the most um, common expression in this country, in fact, one could call it um, the one term everybody in this country uses is sorry, so much so that I now consider myself very British because the other day when I hit my head against my own kitchen door, I said sorry, and then I realized I was saying sorry to the door. You know, it's, it's, it's that sort of world. It's a complex world, and one shouldn't reduce it to a soundbite of saying Britain is this or that. Britain is, if you like, a very interesting contradiction. We will bring it back to you for a moment. You were born in Calcutta in 1947, the year India regained independence from the British Empire. You came to the UK from Mumbai as an engineering student, aged 21, in 1969, <laughs> carrying uh, the equivalent, I calculated, of 12 and a half thousand pounds in your underwear. That sounds like a comfortable seat for the journey, but it was actually 800 pounds at the time. Tell me, what do you remember of that journey and your expectations of, of the UK? Well, I had grown up um, being told that the UK was the greatest country in the world. Um, I, had, I was the first, if you like, post-colonial generation um, in India. My father felt the British were the good imperialists, the best imperialists you could have. You know, I had led, read William Brown books and I believed everybody in Britain had a cook. And I've yet to find anybody who's got a cook. Maybe you have, Jack, but I don't know. I um, certainly don't have a cook. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, this, this idea of, of the British being always morally right, um, the Times of London being the great paper, I found very few people actually read it here, um, and, and things like that, that, that. Britain has a sense of fairness, sense of justice, a sense of looking at things very dispassionately, very correctly, and that if you wanted to validate yourself, you wanted to write for a British newspaper. You wanted to be a graduate of a British university. America was considered uh, slightly okay, yes. There were Hollywood movies, but America was considered slightly second-rate. You arrived only a year after the Conservative MP Enoch Powell delivered a speech which famously evokes the image of a river, quote, foaming with much blood, an image Powell 
used to liken his own fear of immigration to that of a Roman envisaging mass slaughter by invaders. In that speech, he added more explicitly his belief that, quote, in, in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Did you already have a sense when you came to the UK of the hostility that was being stoked towards groups of people coming in from outside the country? No, I wasn't aware of colour. I grew up in India. I, I was educated by Jesuits, though I'm not Catholic, but that was part of the educational system in India. But I wasn't aware that colour marked you out. It's when, when I came to this country, I met an old woman who came up to me. We had a conversation and then she said, well, you've obviously been well educated in this country. I hope you'll go back uh, to your country and use this education to get it out of poverty. And I'd only just arrived. But there's where the duality came in. Because within a few weeks, I was standing as president for Loughborough University Students' Union. And I got elected. I'd hardly been in this country for six weeks. And um, a woman, an English woman, um, a, a girl student, there were in those days not very many um, women at Loughborough, it was largely a, um, a men's university, said that I, she had voted for me because she thought my face was honest. You know, And that, to me, marked the duality. While it was very made very clear to me that because of my brown skin, I was different and I stood out. And when I came down to London from university to look for accommodation, I would look up the ads to look for rooms and I would speak on the phone and when I got there the rooms were gone and one of them actually said to me finally I'm sorry my husband wouldn't want an Indian uh, to be given a room in a bedsit in this house that is how if you like my color perception changed. You began your journalism career at LBC Radio and you still ride on all the latest developments in football and cricket you're a Tottenham fan or sufferer as fans <laughs> as of Tottenham like to call themselves Sport has been a great influence on your life and has been a constant theme on your road to assimilation in, the, in British society. But you do write in the book of instances in which the tribal mentality in British sport has actively promoted racism and racially motivated assault, instances of which you've suffered from personally. Yeah, I, I began my journalism by bluffing my way into London Broadcasting by saying I was a very great cricket expert and that London Broadcasting had just started a new radio station, commercial radio station. And from that moment, I was always writing on sport, though I also used my accountancy qualification to write on business for many years. But I was reporting matches for the Sunday Times, football matches, and I had been sent to cover a match uh, in Norwich. Norwich were playing Arsenal. And um, on the way back, I got into the train. The train was full of Arsenal supporters, and one of them saw me. And then immediately he cried out, hit the coon over the head with a baseball bat. In those days, that was a very popular song. I'm talking of 1980 80 now. And he started chasing me down the train. And he very nearly caught up with me. But as he did, a policeman intervened. And um, there were colleagues of mine with the Sunday Times. They insisted I lay charges. And I did lay charges. I went back to Norwich for the trial. What that showed, as I journeyed back with the police officer and my colleagues, was the other side of Britain, that this was a Britain saying, no, you were very nearly assaulted, you have the right to get justice, and when the trial took place and this guy pleaded guilty and he was fined, and I felt a bit sorry for him, and it was British justice working, and later on, a few months later, again, I was very badly threatened um, coming back from reporting a football match from Nottingham Forest. 
these were Chelsea fans threatening me and um, they were about to sort of bash me up when the police intervened. And again, the Sunday Times then persuaded me to carry on reporting and actually wrote a big story about it. There wasn't, if you like, only a rapacious lion society which was willing to destroy people in a spa. There was also the lamb element of the society which wanted to acknowledge if wrong had been done that that wrong should be highlighted. As you say, you had a lot of support from your colleagues at the Sunday Times during this period, but it didn't stop you having to drive all the way to particular matches because you couldn't be sure that on public transport you were entirely safe. Yes, in fact, I would plan my trips to football matches like a, like a, a general planning a campaign. I would find out where the city was. I would find out the exact location of the football ground. I would get there two hours before the match started, you know, and sometimes the stewards hadn't come in, so I could find a parking space very near the ground. I worked out that if the car was parked very near the ground, by the time I finished reporting, I could get in the car. The car was my shield, if you like, my tank. Once I got in the car, nobody could assault me, and then I could drive back home. So I had to plan, and for five years, I did not take a train reporting football matches. So how has the temperament changed in this country since then from where you stand and and what or whom do you credit for that change? When the so-called coloreds came in the late 40s, 50s, there were very few non-white people living here. And as they started becoming part of society, as they made their moves, initially there was a lot of hostility. But the politicians, I must say, played a part. Race Relations Act came in and a new generation of people came up who had no memories of the generation before the war. Their attitudes was different. I think pop music played a part in this, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and all of them because the culture that grew up was not just a unique white culture. It was became a much more diffuse culture. Cuisine changed. When I first came here, the cuisine was dreadful. We are in this wonderful restaurant and there weren't restaurants like this. Indian food used to be called blotting paper food. You had 11 pints and that would be the only restaurant you would go. It was terrible food. Indian restaurants opened. Another factor was, um, and this affected the Asians particularly, the East African Asians came who were actually quite well-off Asians, they were business people, they moved in, they started owning pharmacies and businesses. So the image of those Asians changed. You're right, I think these are your words. Those who voted to leave want Britain to roar like a lion, as it did for more than 200 years. In contrast, the Remainers saw Brexit as a self-inflicted wound, and they feel that the only option is to live happily with the Europeans and work out a common future. Brexit fades in and out throughout the duration of the book. Um, But I'd like to know how you think these psychocultural, if I can use that word, phenomena, uh, can be reconciled so as to uh, minimize the risk of their becoming ever more toxic in a post-Brexit Britain. You see, what has happened with Brexit, and I start the book with my um, um, experiences with a Yorkshire farmer. My wife and I had gone walking there. We got lost. Um, and the Yorkshire farmer rescued us in his Land Rover. It was very nice, and we spoke, and Brexit was coming. You know, the, the referendum was coming. This was before the referendum. And I said, how, how would he vote? And he said uh, he would vote to leave. Now, he told me that as a farmer, he got a lot of EU subsidy. He was going to vote uh, to leave, to stop immigration. And then he looked at me, and he said, 
you're from Sri Lanka and I want my country back. Now, I'm not saying he was being racist, but he clearly saw me as an outsider and he felt there were too many people here. Now, London is like the Venice, modern-day Venice. You know, you could float it off and it would almost be a republic on its own. But Yorkshire, the Yorkshire that I'm talking about, is still very much the Yorkshire that was there in the 60s. And they have seen, if you like, two waves of migration. The first wave of migration is probably what I was at the tail end of it, the one that came after the war, the Windrush generation, the Indians and the Pakistanis, and then what was Bangladeshis. And then the second wave that came after the EU was formed, the Eastern European migration. And to a certain extent, I can understand that. Nobody told them the second wave was coming. And what has happened is not enough explanation has been given about why these people are here, you know, what are they doing here? Let me quote from the book, you say that the decision to keep India in the Commonwealth when its membership had no real significance is today echoed in the Brexit debate about Britain's future relationship with the EU. In many ways, it reflects the fact that for all their reputation for being decisive and liking cut and dry solutions, the British have always believed that when it comes to disengagement, there can never be a final goodbye. You refer to moments in history like this as typical of a country always wanting to eat and have its cake as well. Uh, you use the Irish Free State as an example, but place a particular emphasis on the British Nationality Act of 1948. That act gave nearly a billion people around the world the right to settle in the United Kingdom after the Second World War, an epic conservative-led push for freedom of movement, which did not anticipate the mass migration of non-white populations. You see, I think that is a very good illustration of the lion and lamb. Let me explain. You see, there were two empires. There was the white empire, which was the upstairs empire of the Australians, Canadians, white South Africans, New Zealand. There was a downstairs empire of India, what has now become Pakistan, and the African colonies, and the West Indies, and so on. And after the war, after India became independent, India wanted to leave. India wanted to do what America had done and what Ireland did. Set up a republic, have good relations with Britain, but that is it. And that is when Churchill and Attlee, both of whom, Churchill certainly didn't want India to become independent. Attlee also had his doubts about India. Both of them wrote pleading letters to Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, saying, why don't you stay? And Nehru, educated at Harrow and Cambridge and in love with Edwina Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten's wife, who was the last viceroy, gave in and stayed in the Commonwealth. And what this allowed the British to do convert what was a white empire society into a commonwealth. That is what they're trying to do with the EU. They want to leave the EU but have all the comforts of the EU. Free trade, they don't want to have free movement, but, you know, no borders, things like that. But, you know, it's, it's a, the EU is a club with certain rules. You can't just leave the club and expect all the benefits of the club. So the British actually, despite the impression they give of hard decisions firm pledges being made and fulfilled. Actually, that is the soft side of them, the lamb side of them. They want to be cuddled. They want to be told, you know, no, you were good people, you know. When you and I met, I just heard you give a proposal before an audience on what you call the two G's of post-empire cognitive dissonance. Uh, they stand for gratitude and guilt. Your proposal was that we agree a moratorium on these attitudes whereby the descendants of people that have been conquered in the past and mistreated no longer ask those of the conqueror to feel guilt if in return those descendants no longer ask for the conquered descendants' gratitude for what they feel they have done for them. 
this seemed to me both an accurate way to name the forms of gratification which either argument often seeks and a good way to call an end to the vicarious nature of post-empire debate since fewer and fewer of us can claim personal experience. That said, uh, identity as a basis for political engagement in this country has never been so potent. Whether it leads you to argue for the demolition of Nelson's Column, which is just outside our window here at Carriages Grill, um, or a revival of the Churchillian brinkmanship that characterized the empire. Uh, why do you think it is important that we put an end to this sort of standoff in discourse over Britain's imperial legacy and call it quits? First of all, why should your generation, or even your father's parents' generation, feel any guilt for what was done before them? I, I see. I was born a Hindu. The Hindus have terrible caste systems. Um, they had untouchability, though it's been banned. And the untouchables in India, the Dalits, as they are called, get privileged access to um, educational institutions and jobs and so on. Nevertheless, that was there. I can't feel guilty for what my parents did or what my grandparents did. But I must be aware of what they did. I mustn't deny that they did it. I mustn't say, oh no, they were, they were actually quite um, paternalistic and nice people and they gave these people who they treated badly cups of tea and things like that. But at the same time, I can't feel guilty. The similar, similarly, your generation or even your parents' generation can't expect me to feel gratitude because, you know, their um, parents went out to India and as a result of which the Indians learned the English language, had a judicial system of um, different to what they had before, railways and so on. You know, I mean, otherwise we get into this question of um, 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 drawing up a balance sheet. You can't draw up a balance sheet between the conquer and the conquered. You know, events took place. Certain events were terrible, certain events were good. But that wasn't, you know, you can't have a moral equivalence. You, you know, the best thing to do with, with the monument, I don't believe in um, demol demolishing Nelson's column, but with the other monuments that you see around London, some of them, what they do with history is they edit the history. They talk about the great deeds of the person as seen by the conquerors then. A hundred years ago, if you're now going to present that memorial as something to be acceptable both to the children of the conquered and the children of the conquerors, then some of the information that the children of the conquered had must also be on that memorial to balance it out, because otherwise it becomes a memorial just of the conqueror. You've arguably built a career on predictions. Where do you see us after the 29th of March? Theresa May will get some sort of deal through Parliament. I don't think there will be a no deal. I think it'll be one of the one another one of those messy British compromises like having a united Irish rugby team or getting India in the Commonwealth. It'll be a bit similar to that and the British will claim a great victory and and will say oh well, you know, the EU finally understood what it was all about. You don't have money on it, I hope. Not yet, no. <laughs> right. I think that's our cue to order. Mehir Bose, thank you very much.